Christian to all who believe. Thus we believe it to be not simply information, but information that comes in power by your spirit. And so I pray that you would grant us grace to hear. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, You may be seated. Turn please to Acts in chapter 28. Acts chapter 28. I want to read beginning um, with verse 11 actually. Acts in chapter 28 please. Hear the word of God. After three months, remember, Paul and his companions are on their way to Rome. They've been traveling for some time, hundreds of miles, and uh, they had to park a bit in Malta because uh, the weather was bad and it was the wrong time of year. They learned to sail, and so um, they spent three months uh, there, and now they're setting sail again. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Now just take a picture of this in your mind for a moment. Paul's on a big ship, and in the front of the ship is the hood ornament, if you will, are, are carved two gods. Now, if I were more clever, I was talking to Rick Pratt this week, if I were more clever, I, I would preach a whole sermon about that because of the irony of it on the one hand. See, I don't have time to do that, so I'm just going to give it to you now, just all that I can think of. Uh, The irony of that, here Paul had gone through a shipwreck, was saved by his God. And yet now he's on a ship and they think that these gods of Rome will protect him. And so I just think that's just ironic and hilarious. But it's also a picture of our lives, isn't it? We seem to set sail and if anybody looked at us, they would think that perhaps we're governed by the gods of America. Or the gods of IBM or the gods of KU or the God Barra Company or the God Bar. But we're not. And that's what's so fun about it, really. We get this little smirk and smile to realize that whatever it is they think is governing us isn't because we're following after God. That, that's, just, that's just some musings there. But I just think that's an interesting picture. Forgive me. Verse 12, putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regrium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on a second day, uh, we went to uh, Putioli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far from the the Forum of Apius and and, and three taverns. Wouldn't it be great to have the three taverns EPC? (laughs) Wouldn't just be funny? I don't know. Probably to be Episcopalian, uh, but that's just, a, I'm just kidding. I love the Episcopalians, but they're just a little more free in all of that. So we wouldn't be the Three Taverns Baptist Church, we know that. Anyway, um, just, I'm sorry. Uh, the Forum of, of Apius and Three Taverns to meet us on, on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier that guarded him. So that picture... Paul's under house arrest, essentially. Uh, he's chained to a Roman soldier 24-7. Verse 17. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty 
because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case, but because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I've asked uh, to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. And they said to him, We've received no letters from Judea about you, and none, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are for with regard to this sect. We know that everywhere it is spoken against. And when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, and others disbelieved and disagreeing among themselves. They departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should hear with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, we've been in the book of Acts since January of 2007, so it's been a while, a bit longer than I had anticipated uh, actually, but I've been gone a little bit more than usual, but, but um, we've been there a while. Next Sunday, actually, I'm going to preach kind of a transition sermon from Acts to what's coming next. I'm not going to tell you what's coming next, because I don't know what's coming next, but trust me, next week will be a transition uh, to that and from this, at least from this, it will. Um, but I must say, having been in Acts this long, that this ending is quite anticlimactic isn't really, though I've read it before, obviously, so I know it was coming, but really never is to me what I think it, it really should be. It's a rather quiet ending to a rather unquiet book. We began back, obviously, in chapter 1 as Luke addresses this one to whom he writes, this man, Theophilus, and he tells Theophilus that in his first volume, that is in the Gospel of Luke, he talked about what Jesus began to do and teach up through the ascension. And so now we get the impression, it gets a sense, and it's a good sense, that what we're going to see is uh, Jesus ruling and reigning after his ascension. And, and that's good because that's the time period in which we live. We live in the time period after which Jesus has ascended and prior to his return. So this is apropos, this is healthy, this is helpful for us to see what life is like for Christians during this time after the ascension of Jesus as he rules and reigns from on high and before his return when he brings to, to fruition all that he has, has, uh, has purposed to do. Uh, you remember that Jesus, as the book of Acts opens, is resurrected and he's with his apostles, he's with his disciples. And he's teaching them about things, most especially about the kingdom of God, which brings to them a question that says, is now the time... Uh, when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. No doubt they had gotten that, honestly, from the things which Jesus had said, from their own history. They knew that in the book of Exodus that Moses had been told by God to tell the people that they would be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. So you get this sense of identity for them as a, as a whole kingdom of intercessors, a whole kingdom of priests, and a holy nation, a nation set apart for God, 
by God. And, and also, they no doubt would pick up that sense from, from the word given to King David. He was told that his, his, his throne would be an everlasting one. There would always be someone from his household, if you will, from his tribe who would sit on this, this throne. And no doubt they would remember the word of Isaiah the prophet who came to them and said that unto you, this, unto you is born a child and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And that government, that governing by this one who was this child, this son who was born, who was given to them, would be a wise governing for he would be a wonderful counselor. It would be a powerful governing because he would be called the mighty God. It would be a, a governing of, of care and compassion and provision and protection because he would be known as the everlasting father. It would be, it would be a governing of, of real peace and security because he would be the very prince of peace. And so no doubt in their mind is this government, this rule, this kingdom of God. And, and thus they ask the question, is now the time with this kingdom going to be restored to Israel? And Jesus really didn't pay any particular attention to that, to respond to that, but rather he tells them that they're to wait in Jerusalem uh, for the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit power would co come upon them and they would be his witnesses. So you get the sense that Jesus will now rule and reign, thus the kingdom of God, the rule of God. And he would reign in such a way that he would reign through his people, through these witnesses, through this gospel that they would proclaim, even as the gospel is spread and as the church is being built, as more and more people repent of their sins, we see the kingdom of God. We see the very rule of Christ moving in the hearts, the lives of people, causing them, enabling them to turn away from their sin and to trust in him. That's a sense of the presence of the kingdom of God, the rule of Christ. As we see, he overrules, we could even say he conquers as king, the hearts of people and changes them, transforms them, moves them out of the kingdom of darkness into his own kingdom, this kingdom of light, this kingdom that is in the very presence of God as people repent and turn to him and believe. We see it, even then, as these very ones who repent and believe uh, move to loyalty and allegiance, joyful obedience to this one who is the king. That's a manifestation of the kingdom of God. It's a manifestation of the presence of the rule of Christ. When there is a kingdom and when there is a king, there is loyalty and obedience and allegiance to that king. And thus you see, as that happens, and how does it happen? It happens as this gospel goes forth, as the power of God goes forth in the gospel. The gospel is indeed the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. I'm going to take this off. Excuse me, I just feel a little confined today. I'll tell my wife I did that. Hang her back here. Um, but, but that's the manifestation of the kingdom of God, you see. And then even as community develops within the context of church life, as community develops that gives evidence of the fact that Jesus is ruling and reigning because we see in the midst of that community the very governance of Christ. What do we see when we see the governance of Christ? We see people treating one another in love. We see people treating one another with the very characters and the values of Christ. We see compassion and mercy and grace and justice and love, righteousness prevailing 
the very kingdom of God, you see, manifesting itself uh, in the earth. And so, so what we expect to see as we read through the book of Acts is the, the spread of the gospel, the building of the church, and the manifestation of the very kingdom of God. And we see it. There's the, the great fireworks on the day of Pentecost when the power of God is seen in, 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 in just real, tangible kinds of speech and, and, and language and, and manifestation and power and people turn from their sin and come to faith. The 3,000 are saved on that day. We, we see it, this manifestation of the, the power, the rule, and the reign of Christ as a man who is lame is healed in the name of Jesus. That, 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 that Jesus rules over physical weakness in such a way that we can see it, that, that in the name of Jesus, a person is actually healed who could not walk and now is walking and leaping, the scripture says, and praising God. Uh, we see the manifestation of the kingdom. Again, as more and more are added to the number of those who, who belong to Christ, those who are being saved. We see this manifestation of the kingdom of God. Uh, we see it even uh, in, 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 in the courage that's given to the disciples that they can stand before those who threaten them and even who beat them and even who imprison them. So we see the manifestation of the kingdom of God as, as, as these disciples are given courage. We say, yes, Jesus is in fact ruling and reigning. Some of them are arrested and, and miraculously, because of the power of Christ, they're set free. An earthquake comes and, 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 and the doors of the prison are open. And we even see the manifestation of the kingdom as some are killed. But yet still, those who remain are filled with courage to continue and we see the manifestation of the kingdom of God, the reign of Christ is this, as, uh, over the work of this ministry as, as the gospel goes out, first because of persecution and then by way of vision to Peter and, and, and then on even as this persecutor of the church, Saul of Tarsus, is converted and he goes out and plants churches. So we see all of that. And now we get to the end, you know, and all we get is this picture of Paul sitting chained in a house with people coming and going, and he's talking to them uh, about the kingdom of God and about the gospel and about, and about Jesus. And, and you wonder, where's the fireworks of Pentecost? You know, where's, where, where's all these numbers coming to faith? Where are these churches being planted? You know, you, uh, you sort of want Luke to, to tell us about, about Peter. What's going on with him and about Philip? And what's going on with him? And what's going on with Barnabas? And, and how is the church progressing in those ways? Or, or at least wait a while. Uh, Luke, and, and give us some information about what happens after Paul's released. Did he really go to Spain as he wanted to, as tradition, some tradition tells us? Did he go to Macedonia and Achaia? Uh, was it really true that, that, that after Rome burned, Paul came back to Rome and was rearrested and beheaded? I mean, tell me that. And you just get this sort of business as usual, Paul in sort of prison, but kind of free in a house that he's paying for, chained to a Roman soldier and telling people about Jesus as they, as they come and go. Rather tame, it seems, rather quiet, rather for Paul, kind of bourgeois, you know, here he is in this situation. But of course, I can only be disappointed with the ending if I missed the whole point of what Luke is trying to communicate to us which isn't about personalities. It's not about Paul. It's not about Peter. It's not about Barnabas. It's not about Philip. It's not about any of those particular people. That's not what's important. What's important for Luke is for us to see that the gospel has triumphed. 
At the very beginning, we were told that, that they'd be his witnesses, these, these, these men, these apostles, these disciples of Jesus, that they and others would be witnesses of Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And what we find, the magnificent thing is, we find that now they're in Rome. Of all places, it's gotten all the way to Rome. And there's Paul, unhindered, though he's still a prisoner, unhindered, sharing the gospel, preaching the gospel, teaching about Jesus. And you get a sense, again, just of this picture of thinking, wow, who would have ever thought that? Luke underplays it in a sense of saying, the drama is right here, the magnificence is right here, the fireworks really is here. Who would think that in the midst of this sort of peaceful moment that the gospel is being preached in Rome, it made it all the way to Rome. Who would have thought that? If you go back to Acts chapter 21, this prophet Agabus comes to, comes to, 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 to Paul. And he takes Paul's belt off of Paul and he wraps it around his own wrists and feet. And he says, the wearer of this belt, the owner of this belt, is going to go to Jerusalem and is going to be bound by the Jews and turned over to the Gentiles. Now that is not a pretty picture because that's exactly what happened to Jesus when Jesus was crucified. And so I don't know that anybody at that moment in time is betting on Paul to get either to Jerusalem or most especially to Rome. I mean, you've got to think that things look pretty dim. And of course, at that point, Paul says, I'm going to go anyway. If it would have been me, I would have said, give me my belt back. I'm on to my way to Chicago. Um, or maybe to Memphis. But... Um, uh, at least they wouldn't follow us at the end. But, the, um, but Paul says, no, I'm going to Jerusalem. I really am. Even though it means this. And of course, when he gets there, precisely what Agabus said comes true. That he's bound. But now when he's taken by the Gentiles, by the Roman authorities, ironically, providentially, ironically, that is what saves him. Because it's the Jews who want to kill him and it's the Romans who, who want to protect him. And so they protect him at that moment in time. So that's, that's really what, what saves him. But, but, but then the, the Jewish authorities are so persistent, so persistent to the degree, remember last week we mentioned, so persistent that, that 40 men take a vow that they're not going to eat or drink until Paul is killed. And so they plot this ambush against Paul. But remember, ironically, providentially, Paul's nephew hears about this plot, tells Paul. Paul tells the officer. The officer tells the commander. The commander then elicits 470 soldiers to guard Paul and get him out of Jerusalem in safety to Caesarea. But in Caesarea, they want to send him back to Jerusalem. And so Paul says, no, I'm a Roman citizen. Send me to Rome. And so then that begins this time of getting Paul to Rome. But even still... If you're reading through the book of Acts for the first time at that point, you would wonder, is he really ever going to get to Rome? Especially when he's stuck in a prison for two whole years. Especially then when he's put on a ship at the wrong time of the year in order to, to, to sail and there's a huge shipwreck. Is he really going to make it to Rome? Then he gets bitten by a snake. Is he really going to make it? And I think Luke is saying to us, look, he made it. What could be more dramatic than that? Here he is. He made it. In fact, it's, it's so surprising that not only is Paul in Rome, that it's Paul that's in Rome. Would you ever thought, when you were reading through Acts chapter 7, 
that this man, Saul of Tarsus, would ever be sitting anywhere, arrested for the gospel's sake, and telling people about Jesus. Because when we first met Saul of Tarsus, he was standing there giving authority authorization for Stephen to be killed. And then he retired literally upon Christians. So I think Luke is saying, get it, people. He's in Rome. And it's Paul that's in Rome. In chapter 6 and chapter 7, would you ever bet that it would be Paul, Saul of Tarsus, in Rome telling people about Jesus? Would you ever imagine that? Look and see what happened. This is the triumph of the gospel. Saul of Tarsus was here. And even that the gospel would get anywhere. I mean, even if you think about it. You remember the disciples of Jesus when he was crucified scattered. They, they, they just scattered. They were cowards. They were thinking about getting on with their lives now that Jesus had been crucified. And they were afraid for their own lives. This small band. And yet something happened. They saw Jesus alive. And now the gospel has made it out of Jerusalem all the way to Rome. Luke is saying, don't miss this. This is huge. And even when we think of the whole history of redemption, as we call it, this history of God redeeming his people. We go all the way back to Genesis and we realize in the opening chapters of Genesis we we see this glorious picture of creation. We see this glorious uh, picture of the crown of God's creation, human beings, and they're made in his image to glorify him, to worship him, to honor him, uh, to live under him, to rule the earth uh, as they live under under God. And then we see sin enter. We see the rebellion of human beings and and we wonder, could this ever be fixed? And God makes a promise that yes, he can fix it. But then as we read through the whole Old Testament, it's just amazing to us all the obstacles that that seem to exist there. God makes a wonderful promise to this man named Abraham that he's, that through him will come one who will bless all the nations of the earth. And yet this man Abraham who becomes Abraham doesn't have a child. And so his wife, Sarah, comes to him and says, take my handmaiden and have a child with her. And he does. And we think, oh, no, Abraham, that just doesn't seem right to do. But that didn't thwart the purpose of God. That God overcame that. And in the midst of Abraham's old age and Sarah's barrenness, together they have a child, Isaac. Amazing. Joseph's brothers, if you remember that story, couldn't thwart the plan either. Here's Joseph, one of the children of, 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 of Israel, and, and here he is, and, and, and his brothers sell him into slavery, but, but of course that couldn't stop God because what they meant for evil, God meant for good. Pharaoh couldn't stop it, even though he was in a situation, Pharaoh, and he was ruling over the Israelites, and, and he began to kill off all the young infant boys, so as to stop the population growth, if you will, of the Israelites so that they, the slaves, wouldn't take over the slave owners, the Egyptians. And ironically, it was in the midst of that time that Moses was born and and Moses survived. So Pharaoh couldn't even stop God in the midst of all this, nor could Moses stop God in the midst of this because Moses ended up fleeing Egypt, but, but God came and got him and brought him back to Egypt and used Moses to be the deliverer, the one he had called to be the deliverer. Moses couldn't thwart that as well. One of the most pathetic characters in all of the Old Testament, this man named Haman couldn't. You remember in the story of Esther that Haman wanted the Jews killed 
And yet, ironically, he ended up being the one who was killed. God would not allow him to thwart. The sin of Israel couldn't thwart the promise of God that through them would come one who would bless all the nations of the earth. Herod couldn't thwart it, even though when he heard about the birth of Jesus, this one who was a rival king to him, as he learned, he began also, as Pharaoh had done, to kill the infant boys, to kill the the, the young boys, and the great bloodbath that took place because of that. But still, Jesus survived, of course. Satan couldn't stop. God had put into motion and Luke is saying to us don't miss this church don't miss it the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe the gospel is the very power of God the gospel will indeed triumph now what then shall we take from the end of this consideration this end of this 16 month reading of the book of Acts by the way I figured if it takes us 16 Months to read 30 pages, it'll take us 35 years to get through the Bible. So, huh, I've been here 19, we have a ways to go, people. Yeah, um, we'll take some a little quicker, I suppose, as I get older. But, um, but what do we take from this? You know, I, I don't read a lot of novels because I don't have a lot of time to do that. But, but when I do, and it was a good one, I must say at the end of the novel, I sit down, I close the book, and I marvel often and how it is that this writer was able to tie all of this stuff together. It's just as amazing if it's a good writer that in the last sort of little bit of the book, everything kind of comes together and you begin to remember, oh yeah, that was all the way back in the beginning and now I see the the thread of that. And I sit and I just for a moment sort of worship this author going, wow, this was a clever person. How much more, God? Here we come to the end of the book of Acts and we see in a sense how it's all come together, how amazing it is that Paul, this, this, this persecutor of the church, is sitting in Rome, outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel, sitting in Rome, unhindered, talking about Jesus and the kingdom of God. How amazing is that if you think of it all the way from Genesis to this point and to realize that the gospel has always been bigger than just for Israel. I mean, we see it in the life of Abraham. Abraham was saved before the nation of Israel was formed. That was by the design of God. And he was saved not because of the law, not because of the the, the formation of Israel, but he was saved by grace through faith before any of that happened. So in Abraham's experience, you see, even the salvation of God, even in the old covenant, transcended one nation. It wasn't just simply for one ethnic group. In fact, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says that Abraham actually heard the gospel. And he heard the gospel through the promise of God. The promise of God being from your seed, every family of the earth or every nation of the earth will be blessed. And so so even in the promise given to Abraham, the, the promise of salvation transcended just one group. And God always said that. And as as Paul comes and he's called to be this apostle to the Gentiles, we see that now come to fruition. That God kept Israel together in Old Testament times, ancient Israel together, and fulfilled his promise by keeping them together to such a degree that through them, this very one, this very Messiah, this very Christ, this very Jesus would come. That he might save his people from their sins more than just 
those who were, who were Jewish, but Gentiles as well. And we see it. There it is. The gospel going out to the Gentiles. In fact, Paul even, or Paul even uses this prophecy from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah had said to, to the people uh, that they wouldn't understand. Their hearts would be hard. And indeed now, we're seeing the fruition of that even in the ministry of Paul. And so now the gospel won't exclude those who are Jewish. Jewish people come to faith all the time. But now it will go to the Gentiles as well. They, as Paul said, will listen. We're evidence, most of us, of that. Paul was evidence of that there in Rome. But secondly this. I must say that my reason for taking up the book of Acts when I did was because I wanted to renew in us to rethink together our identity. I don't know if it's had that effect on you or not. I can't really tell. God usually doesn't give me glimpses into that necessarily. But to restore, renew our identity as witnesses of Jesus. I mentioned last Sunday, and I've mentioned before, that the Greek word from which we get our word witness is martus, also the word from which we get the word martyr. And the best witness is the witness who realizes what they know and what they've seen, what they testify to is of such great value that they're willing to die for it. The great philosopher, mathematician, physicist, 17th century scholar, Pascal, said, the witnesses I believe are those who have their throats cut. And that's what we're called to as witnesses of Jesus, to realize that this is of such value, this is of such great worth, this is who we are, witnesses of Jesus. And I don't know how you identify yourself. I don't know what your self-identity is. I don't know how you think of yourself or even how other people think of you necessarily. But oftentimes we're identified by where we grew up or our families, our spouse, our kids, our occupation, uh, our favorite sports teams, those kinds of things. That's how we're identified. But we're to identify as witnesses of Jesus. That's to be our mindset. As we walk into the grocery store, I'm a witness of Christ. What's that mean here in this context? Last weekend when Karen and I were in Des Moines uh, in the ICU with our little grandson, as we prayed on our way up, our prayer not only for him and our kids and so forth and so on, but our prayer was, God, when we are there and after we leave, make it known that we believe in Jesus. Even if we don't say Jesus, even if we don't talk about it, but, 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 but allow us to live in such a way that, that, that we live like followers of Christ, that we give testimony to that, and, and that people realize that that witness is more important than anything else. It's more important than our very lives. Witnesses of Jesus, to have that mentality. And so you get the sense, as Paul's sitting in, in, in this last couple of verses in the book of Acts, as he's sitting there, we realize, I realize, it feels to me rather mundane, and I think that's Luke's point as well. Paul is doing who Paul is. He's a witness of Jesus. And so it ends with him being a witness of Jesus in that circumstance, chained to a Roman soldier, 
under house arrest. There he is. What else would you expect him to be doing? There's a sense in which that though we're not an apostle, perhaps like Paul, though we don't witness in the same way he does verbally or whatever, but what else should we be doing? That very thing. I mentioned that hymn of the, uh, at the offering time. In fact, it's a hymn I don't particularly care for. Frankly, not because, I mean, I like hymns, but I don't like the third verse of this hymn. It just needs some theological work. Um, but uh, so that's why we would never sing it. Although if we did, we'd sing the first, second, and fourth stanzas. Uh, as we sometimes, well, we never do, but some churches do. But anyway, uh, the title of the hymn is Rise Up, O Church of God. Now, that's a change. It used to be Rise Up, O Men of God, but uh, Rise Up, O Church of God works. But, but the, the first verse, which, which is wonderful, goes like this, the words anyway. Rise up, O Church of God, have done with lesser things. Give heart and mind and soul and strength to serve the King of Kings. And I think that's the call to us. It's always the call to the church. But I think it's the call to us in these days. To have done with lesser things. That doesn't mean we become all serious and all of that about about everything. But you get the point. We, We get caught up in lesser things. And we miss the joy of the greater things. That's, that's true in all kinds of facets, walks of life. Moms get caught up in the mundane with their children. And they miss the greatness of what they're doing as moms and training up their kids. We, we get caught up in the mundane things in our jobs. And miss the joy of the bigger picture of, of, of the cultural mandate that, that God gives to us. To, to take dominion over the earth and to be productive and to produce and all of that. Until we, we, we get, even in the context of church and ministry, we get caught up in the mundane of it. Who's going to do this and who's going to do that and how are we going to do this and how are we going to do that. That it takes the joy away from the, the bigger picture, the great thing that's taking place concerning the witness of, of Christ and saying, have done with these, with these lesser things. Sometimes I, I think that we live in the McDonald's of contentment. You know? Shouldn't use brand names, so if you eat at McDonald's all the time and you like it, that's, that's fine. I really like their sausage biscuits. So anyway, uh, and their coffee's good, but... Uh, so this may be on the dollar value of illustrations for you. But... Um, the dollar menu. But, but, you know, McDonald's, you go get a McDonald's hamburger. It's not great. It's not horrible. And it, and it provides a certain measure of satisfaction. It doesn't make you ill, generally. But you don't thrill and say, this is the best hamburger I've ever had in my life, generally. And that's the way it is, you see, often with us. We have a little great, some of the greater things, some of the lesser things, and you average that all out and we just sort of live mundane Christian lives. And I think I miss it. We can miss it because we get hung up in the lesser things. Things that don't really satisfy but seem so important to us at the moment. But yet life is always somewhat disappointing apart from the greater things. Yeah, there are movies I like to go see and, and you get excited about going to see a movie but, but then as I come back from that I realize all my favorite characters in the movie go to hell when they die. 
And it just sort of takes a little bit out of it. It just sort of, it just, it just means it just isn't as exciting. Or when I read a novel, I, I realize that some of the, my favorite characters are, are, are people that, 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 that don't know Jesus. And I've spent 15 hours with them reading this book. And, and, and it brings a measure of sadness. And then we look at our neighborhoods. And I realize some of the people that I think are the nicest people as I drive by, there's a tinge of happiness when I see them because I, I like them. And yet there's this tinge of pain as well. And we're being called now to reevaluate, to rethink. How is it that we live our lives? How is it that we understand ourselves? How is it that we spend our money? How is it that we use our time? And to pray that God would enable us to to be done with these lesser things. As as Paul was sitting there in Rome, one of the things he did was to write. During this time, he wrote Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon, probably. That's what we think. And and get a load. Oh, I'm out of time. Get a load of of what he was thinking in the midst of this, the joy that he had. Philippians chapter 1. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What's on his mind? I'm thinking, how do I get unchained from this guy? This is really gross. I don't like it. But he's thinking, I had the opportunity to share with the whole guard of Caesar, the whole Roman guard. They, kept, they were tied to me, four-hour shifts, person after person after person. And so what do you think they heard? We've had people live with us from time to time who aren't believers who just need a place to live, so they stay with us and from time to time. And, and, you know, I'm a pretty quiet, private, introverted guy, and it's not my favorite thing to have lots of people I don't know running around my house necessarily. And people say, well, did you witness to them? And I said, if you just hang around in our house, what else are you going to hear? This is what we talk about all the time. This is what happens. People come over and we pray. We do Bible studies. We, we do stuff. We talk about God and Jesus, and we pray, and that's what they're going to get. And so Paul's having this sense. Not only that, he said that some people, are, while he's in prison, are taking advantage of his imprisonment and, and actually putting him down. And he said, well, that's okay, too, because the gospel's being proclaimed in the midst of that. And then he evaluates his own life, and he says, he says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I won't be ashamed but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You get a sense. And you know, you hate to say you envy somebody who's chained to a soldier in prison. But you envy him because you get a sense at that moment in time, Paul sees what's lesser and Paul sees what's greater. And he's been done with the lesser things And now he's in the midst of the greater things. And he knows it. The final question. Do we take courage from this? Do we take comfort from this? We only do if this is our heart's desire. If our heart's desire is to be wealthy, if our heart's desire is to live a life of ease, if our heart's desire is to live a life of convenience, this won't make you happy. To know that the gospel triumphs even in the midst of being chained to a Roman soldier. But if what makes you happy, 
What thrills your soul is to know that the gospel triumphs and to know that God is in the midst of that and to know that God got Saul of Tarsus to Rome preaching the gospel, meaning that God can take you and take me and take our church places where we could never imagine having an impact. Never imagine having an impact. If that thrills your soul, then this ending thrills your soul. It may be for you and for me. There was Bill laying in, in, on his deathbed, clinging to Christ. See, that's the ending, isn't it? Uh, it doesn't seem very glamorous. <laughs> but if you knew me, you'd go, that's amazing. And there he is, clinging to Christ in the midst of that situation. Or so-and-so, out in the community, living their faith in the midst of people who are uh, objecting to their faith. That's amazing. When Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, he said this, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than you could ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. I have this picture that Paul is sitting there chained to this Roman soldier. Roman soldier is kind of dozing. Paul's looking at him, smiling, realizing, for the last three hours he heard me talk about Jesus. Now I'm jotting this note to the church in Ephesus, and this is amazing. What I want them to do is what I've been doing, is I want them to focus their attention, focus their gaze on this gaze on this one who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ever ask or imagine, because Paul is probably sitting there going, thinking, I never imagined this. Let's pray, Father. I pray for me and for us that you would in fact do more than we can ever ask or imagine by way of your power that is amazingly, surprisingly, at work within us that you might be glorified in Jesus and in your church. And this I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. The response to the benediction is, uh, I believe in Jesus, amen. I picked that one because in one sense, that may be the most mundane thing a group of Christians can say. I mean, what, what, what do you expect us to say? Don't miss how amazing that is. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us. To be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, I believe in Jesus. Amen.